Welcome to Weird Studies, an arts and philosophy podcast with hosts Phil Ford and J.F. Martell. For more episodes or to support the podcast, go to weirdstudies.com. The zone takes care of its own. That's a line from David Cronenberg's film Naked Lunch, a loose adaptation of the William Burroughs novel. I always liked that line. It's ambiguous. Who belongs to the zone? And does the zone take care of them, like a mother with her children, or like a hitman taking care of an inconvenient witness? In Naked Lunch, the interzone takes care of Bill Lee in both senses. The zone giveth, and the zone taketh away. It takes from him what he loves and who he is, but it gives him poetry in return. We talked about zones all the way back in episodes 14 and 15, when we talked about the zone in the Andrei Tarkovsky film Stalker. In that film, the zone is a beautiful wasteland where humans can visit but never stay, and whose geography changes every time it is visited. It is laden with traps that will kill the unwary and unworthy without warning. Who knows why some are worthy and others not? Even those whom the zone chooses are cursed by it. The zone is inimical to human life, but in Stalker, the zone is the only place where the unnamed protagonist, a poet and holy fool, can really be at home. The zone is to such persons what hashish, absinthe, and sorcery were to the decadents, a poison and cure all at once a surplus of ecstasy that you love even as you can feel it destroying you. A zone opens itself to some and not others, for no reason anyone will discover. Zones are incompatible with human reason. Like drug states and mystical gnosis, a zone can exist in your experience without existing in mine. It's not like a photo that you and I can both look at and confirm we are seeing much the same thing. It's more like I see the photo and you see an unknown world shimmering at the very edge of manifestation. We're both right. But without such third-party confirmation as might bind our divergent perspectives together, the only reports we will ever get from a zone are rumors, travelers' tales, presentiments of wonder. When you are in the zone, it is as near to you as your own skin. Its logic envelops you like a dream. And, like a dream, when you are no longer in it, you can never fully express what it was like in there. You can no longer give a coherent account of your actions and motivations. The logic evaporates and leaves behind only a confused memory of an appalling power, an iron and vice-like and inescapable grip. A zone is the part of the map labeled Hicksunt Dracones. All attempts to map a zone will cause it to disappear it might disappear so thoroughly that it will never have existed at all. The zone knows when you are watching it, and, like Heraclitus's nature, it loves to hide. Maybe it doesn't really disappear. It could be right under your nose, and you'd never know. The pianist Glenn Gould said that art, on its loftiest mission, is scarcely human at all. True of art, true of zones. This episode of Weird Studies is about M. John Harrison's novel, The Course of the Heart. 
Maybe it doesn't sound like I've been talking about that book at all in this introduction, but I have. Like Naked Lunch, Stalker, Samuel Delaney's Dahlgren, and John Crowley's Little Big, The Course of the Heart is the only true guide you will ever find to zones, and no less true for being fiction. Like Area X in Jeff Vandermeer's novel Annihilation, Weird Studies is growing, its borders creeping imperceptibly outwards to corrupt the entire world with its madness. JF and I want to give a shout-out to everyone who supports us on Patreon, a zone all its own, promising both unspeakable joys and abyssal dangers. Sign up for the $3 Reader's Tier, at the risk of losing your sanity. Or to the $6 Listener's Tier, at the risk of your very life. Worth it. If this is wrong, you don't want to be right. Shout-out also to the Weird Study subreddit, and a big shout-out and happy birthday to Meredith Michael, who helped us out on production for this week's show. Okay, thanks for listening. Course of the Heart by M. John Harrison. I haven't read that many M. John Harrison books. I've read, I think, one or two other ones. But I read the short story that this book began as when I was a little kid. And I didn't realize this until I was reading this full novel. When I was a kid, my uncle gave me a, an anthology of horror stories. It was, it was, they're all translated into French. It was called Treize histoires diaboliques, like 13 diabolical mm. stories. And one of them was a story by M. John Harrison called uh, Le Grand Dieu Pan, The Great God Pan, which is an Arthur Machen novel. So it's weird this, how it all worked. I read that story when I was a kid. Then I ended up running into Arthur Machen's book when I was an undergrad at the bookstore. And I'm like, hey, I've read this. It was in the, hmm. And I'm like, no, this is different. And then I'm reading Courts of the Heart. I'm like, hey, this is The Great God Pan, which is not, it was like just this huge <laughs> mishmash of references and inter- intertextuality. And so I go way back with this book because the story made a huge impression on me as a kid. It completely traumatized me in the best way possible. And then, uh, yeah, as I was reading the first few chapters, I think the first two or three chapters are basically the short story, The Great God Pan. But I bring this up because the fact that the short story was called The Great God Pan gives us a little bit of a clue about, you know, the springs he's drawing from as he writes this book. It's a very Machen-esque kind of book, I think. And also yeah. there are references to, I mean, indirect, but there are references to... Uh, Pan and a lot, a whole bunch of Greek and Gnostic ideas in here. And I think I first recommended this to you like years ago. Yeah. It's one of my favorite books. And finally sent you a copy, a signed copy. I was very proud of that <laughs> this hmm. earlier this year. It was and a very then, nice birthday present. And now, uh, and now we've both read it and we can talk about it. So, I mean, as far as weird literature, weird fiction goes, this pretty much, this is this is pretty weird. Yeah, yeah, don't get much more weird. Yeah, exactly. So I guess since you just read it for the first time, we could just start with your impressions, general impressions of it. Um, I absolutely loved this. Yeah. And yet at the same time, reading it was not always 
a pleasurable experience, if that makes any sense. Yeah. I've said this about Philip K. Dick, that sometimes his books, if, especially if you read them late at night or when you're kind of vulnerable, which you are late at night, somehow in the dark late hours when everybody is asleep, the boundaries are thinner somehow, right? Mm -hmm. Especially if, like me, you are a chronic insomniac who is always getting up around two or three in the morning. It's like my classic time that I wake up. So I'm always reading something, you know, hoping to get sleepy enough to fall back asleep. And if you read Philip K. Dick, like one of the weirder books like Ubik or The Three Stigmata, or for that matter, if you read this book, The Course of the Heart, it's not necessarily going to go well for you. You know, because it's one of those slightly reality-changing novels. It's a, a novel that, somewhat like the novels that I just mentioned by PKD, are playing around with a multiple reality sort of thing. Like, there's yeah. a sense that the story is taking place in a reality that is tenuously and ambiguously, quote-unquote, reality. Like, the walking around reality that we are used to or think we are. And one of the things about this book, like Ubik and like Three Stigmata, is that it is constantly affecting these almost imperceptible shifts between whatever we might call a, a realistic novel setting and some kind of other world, some kind of Zone. Actually, I think maybe in this conversation, the concept of zones, which we really got into in our stalker episodes, might come back into play. It's almost as if we are back in stalker, but instead of having to break into the zone, dodging automatic weapons fire and finding a little handcart to take us into the heart of the zone, blah, blah, blah. Uh, it's as if we just take a walk and boom, you're there. Yeah, And you don't know how you got there or when exactly you passed from the, between the boundary of the mundane and the zone. Right. But now that you're here, what the fuck? Mm -hmm. And when you're reading it, I mean, okay, I just described the condition of the characters, but this is one of those books that when you're reading it, you kind of feel the same thing as the characters, like exactly what is the reality I'm in? There was a word for a while in, in the literary scene slipstream i don't know if that's still used slipstream fiction which i think often saw philip k dick as a kind of founder fiction that starts real and then slips into weirdness and back into reality one writer i know that was very fond of this term of applying it to himself if i remember correctly was is jonathan carroll have you ever read any, any of his books i don't think so he's a very interesting writer he kind of writes like young adult or almost kind of children's stories for adults. They're written in a language of children's stories. They're, he's a very interesting uh, writer that we, maybe we could look at one day. But this idea of slipstream, which I think is kind of predicated on an obliteration of the conventionally considered to be kind of solid line between imagination and reality. And the reason why it's so unsettling, I think part of the reason is because, well, the imagination is part of reality. So yeah, yeah, exactly. Imaginations exist in this reality. We all have this imaginative life, this inner life going on. And, and if you choose to remove the boundary that makes it clear what lies on which side, 
it can be very disconcerting because then your fears become part of reality. So if I'm afraid of a, I don't know, a freaking werewolf, well, yeah, there's the werewolf that may or may not actually physically be outside, but there's also the imaginal werewolf in my head, which is absolutely real as far as imaginal werewolves go. And if that could be construed as having uh, as much effective power in the world as a physical werewolf, then I'm in a world that's scary because I can't keep telling myself the, I think, what is ultimately the lie that the imagination has no claim on the real. It's something I can just bracket out completely. And so an author that gives us a world where the, the world of the imagination and the consensual kind of real world intermingle and intersect in weird ways. I think that's what these writers do that's so unsettling. I think that's why, especially at night, at the hour of the wolf, three o'clock in the morning when you're reading, maybe that's one possible explanation as to why this type of writer can be so so unsettling and so such great explorers of the weird, really, you know? Yeah. And M. John Harrison is definitely one of the, the masters of this effect. And it's not in the events so much as it is in the events in the book, but also in just his language, his way of using language, his way of evoking the inner states of the characters alongside the their environments in such a way that it becomes very hard to know which is which. He has a really kind of like sorcerous way of writing. And it's strangely, it's, I would say it's the most realistic way of writing because that's how each of us actually experiences life. We experience our imaginal inner life and the outer world at the same time. And there is no clear boundary really in most instances, like what we think and what we feel is just so interlocked with the world. It's like the line that comes back again and again in this book. I think it's like two or three times. There is no escape from inside the meaning of things. Hmm. which is uh, an interesting reversal of the modern condition. It's like, there's no escape from meaning. And that's the horror. Yeah. That's the horror. <laughs> and yes, uh, that's yeah, good. Yeah. That's good. So anyways, yeah, I agree. I agree with the, uh, what you're saying about the effect of reading it. And I think that's what makes it such a great piece of weird fiction. Yeah. Neil Gaiman has this thing that he says about the experience of reading an Aikman story that it's like watching a magician do a trick and you have no idea how he does the trick. Right. It's just a beautiful trick. Like, right. you know, that sort of feeling of like, how did you, how did you fuck with my head in that particular way? And I remember feeling I was a pretty good characterization of Aikman and it's a pretty good characterization of M. John Harrison. Like, right. it's like, there's a magic trick here, how he manages to replicate that eroded boundary between a realistic setting and an imaginal zone. Yeah. Manages to erode that boundary for the characters in the novel, but also for you. So how does he do that? How does he put the horror in you? I don't know how you do that trick, but it's a hell of a trick. We should probably say something about how, what this novel is about, since I don't know if we can assume that many of our listeners will have read it. I didn't know anything about this writer before you sent me the book. Okay. And when I started reading it, it was just a wonderful surprise, like discovering a new, a new writer, sort of like... Um, you know, actually in a weird way, reminded me a little bit of John Crowley, even though their writing style is totally different. But in the sense of being weird, understated writers of tremendous control and craft, like amazingly refined prose, not the kind of people who churn out novels at a high rate of speed. I don't get the impression that M. John Harrison is a super prolific writer. No. 
but it sort of feels like everything he does is a kind of a jeweled precision. I guess that's something that reminded me of Crowley. Anyway, it was just delightful discovering a new writer, somebody to follow up on. <laughs> magic um, realism by people who actually know magic. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, guess that's, I guess you would say that this is a magic realist novel, but I was thinking about I, this. Yeah. I, I don't like the term magic realism. I hate it. Not... <laughs> I okay, hate I'm curious. Term. I'm curious. Yeah. What do you hate about it? And then I'll tell you what I don't like about it. Well, I, I don't like the implied um, th this implication that magic is some kind of additive you bring into realism. Any Faulkner book is magic realism by any definition. Any Dostoevsky book is magic realism. You know, it's just that if we need a flying granny, like in uh, 100 Years of Solitude, <laughs> and then you have magic realism, then it becomes a kind of a, a weird contrivance. I don't really know what the term means, and I, I don't like it. Yeah. Um, just, I, my, yeah, that's exactly my feeling. Yeah. It's also, I've always, see, always seen it as a kind of snobby way of saying like, oh, this isn't fantasy. This is magic realism. So I can right. read that. You can review that in The New Yorker because it's dealing with our reality, but it's using magic as a metaphor to deal with it. You know, it's yeah. like, it, it just, yeah. it, to me, it's, um, it's condescending and mm, yeah. uh, unfair to people like Ursula Le Guin or great fantasists who don't get to be called magic realists, even though their fiction is superior to most books that are magic realism, is, or are, mm. are called that, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah. I do think that the term magic realism, although I think it is used as a sort of snooty way of maintaining your highbrow credentials, like, oh, I'm reading realistic fiction. You know, there's magic and shit in it, but that's okay because it's still realist. I think there's another way of thinking about it, which is probably not how anybody actually thinks of the term, is that reality is always already magical. Right. And so you could also say this is the variety of realism that simply does justice to something that is as common as dirt, common as the element hydrogen. Magic is just there. Yeah. all the time. And you don't need to let it come into your story with a fanfare of drums and trumpets. You can just right. let it sort of seep in. And that's certainly what Harrison does in the course right. of the heart. Yeah. And, it, and it's what a lot of the the official magic realist authors do as well. Like I, I've really, I really enjoyed a lot of Rushdie's novels and certainly enjoyed Gabriel Garcia Marquez. I mean, I, I think these are good writers. It's just, we're just, I'm not trying to like say something about those authors, just about that no, no. particular label. Yeah, just so that's clear. As, as a kind of advertising label. Right, exactly. Although I, I like it. I mean, I, on the face of it, I like the sound of magic realism. I just like that. And I'm sure that when the, the term was coined, I believe it was in a review of Marquez, but I don't know that for sure. And I don't know by whom. I believe that's how they meant it. Yeah. Yeah. But I feel like we should... <laughs> See what the story is actually about. Yeah. So very generally, this is a story about three friends from college who, with the help of a sinister, very odd, possibly insane sorcerer named Yaxley, they perform a ritual that is never explained, it's never described, and indeed in all the 20 odd years that take place after the magical operation, the three characters who perform it, Lucas Medlar, Pam Stasevant, and the unnamed narrator of this novel, they can't actually remember what they did. 
but they know that it has landed them in a world of shit. Yeah. It's sort of cursed them in ways that are hard even to describe and in ways that, at least in the case of Lucas Medlar, we don't even understand the nature of the curse until the very end. Right. And yet there's also a sense that you get by the end of the story that what has been experienced by the characters the entire time is a curse, is a desperate situation that Yaxley has involved them in that they're desperately trying to escape. By the end, there's a sort of a strange feeling that it was never a curse, that it was always something beyond our conventional categories of good and bad or good and evil, that it's just a kind of miraculous, not miraculous, that's not the right word, but a kind of... Transcendent in the most horrific <laughs> way. Yeah. yeah, a horrific transcendence. Yeah. A horrific transcendence. Yeah. But... How about uh, actually ecstatic? Sure. Because, you know, you can be in an ecstasy of terror and an ecstasy of pleasure equally. And that is sort of the deal with whatever it is that is dogging these characters throughout this novel. Yeah. It's strange in many ways, structurally strange novel. So there's a narrator whose life almost seems kind of paper thin. He talks yes. about his wife and his daughter, but in really kind of all of his attention is on his two friends, Lucas and Pam, who actually ended up getting married and divorced. And you get the impression from the way he's chosen to report the events that he's basically given his entire life to helping these people out, to making sure that they don't completely lose it. To yeah. Making sure that Lucas and Pam somehow get through the night to the next day. It's strange. It's a first-person novel, but it reads a lot like a third-person novel because he spends so much time describing Lucas and Pam's relationship and their life and how they suffered because of this bizarre, unremembered ritual. And part of that for the narrator is exploring how Pam and Lucas began as a kind of therapeutic, a kind of way to, to make sense of their lives. They began to invent a fictional world, mm -hmm. uh, a, an alternative history of Europe centered on a country, uh, a fictional, I guess, country, a fictional land in middle Europe that they called the Cœur, like in French for heart. And so in the early chapters, you learn that Lucas started to write the memoirs of an invented person, started to write a fiction, the fictional memoir of a man named Michael Ashman, who was a traveler, a kind of a travel writer before World War II, I believe. And he's, he's writing this guy's memoirs and this character, Michael Ashman, is looking for this vanished European kingdom called the Kaer, which disappeared, didn't just disappear in the same way that, I don't know, like Czechoslovakia disappeared. It <laughs> disappeared from history. It was there and yeah. now it's not. It wasn't there anymore, <laughs> you know? Yeah. And the Kaer becomes the symbol for Lucas and Pam in their shared fantasy, this kind of a fulcrum or in-between point between our world and the world that they accessed somehow through this ritual they did when they were at Cambridge this world that they call the pleroma, the fullness, which is a Gnostic concept of heaven, right? So there's the pleroma, there's our world, which is elsewhere in the book is referred to as kenoma. These are terms from the Gnostic Valentinus, which we may come back to. Kenoma meaning suffering, illusion, emptiness. So there's a fullness out there. There's our empty, lost, fallen world. And in between these two, mediating between the two is this fantastical land called the Kaer, which Pam and Lucas are like 
totally obsessed with for years and years and keep building this fantasy together. And this somehow really uh, fascinates the narrator. And he spends many pages describing in ways that he couldn't possibly know how Lucas and Pam did this together. Yes. I, I guess it's the thematic heart of the novel. But then there's also a series of and, events and, that happen. And the structural yeah. heart as well. I mean, right. Harrison is doing actually a fairly familiar modernist number here. Mm -hmm. The old novel within a novel Mise en abîme, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah, he's using it, I think, brilliantly. And the, the writing is so good. The Michael Ashman passages are so beautifully written. Uh, yes. These are the passages from the fictional memoir that... Uh, Lucas and the character Lucas is writing. It's amazing. And the way that the themes tie together and the way that the main narrative of the novel ties in with this shared fantasy of two of the characters is really brilliantly executed. But um, the other story, uh, at least in the first half of the novel, it has to do with the narrator's relationship with Yaxley. Because Lucas and Pam lost touch with Yaxley after the ritual, but the narrator kept in touch with him, but he didn't never told Lucas and Pam. He became a kind, almost a kind of apprentice or helper of Yaxley's. A very unwilling hel yeah. helper. Yeah. yeah. There's this other relationship between the narrator and Yaxley, this uh, mad sorcerer who I think he said possibly insane. I think he's fucking batshit insane, this guy. And probably as damaged by the ritual as the rest of them, except that his strategy is to feign confidence and... And he ends mm. up destroying himself. Mm. So as a cautionary tale for budding magicians, this book is very effective as well. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> if you were going to gain magical power, there is a terrible price to be paid. And that comes up like in the very last page of this novel, where the narrator has been granted an astonishing ecstatic vision of the Pleroma, or the Kerr anyway, yeah. and thereby that mediating buffer zone between the mundane world and the pleroma. And immediately his wife dies in a horrible way that is synchronistic to a bunch of other things that happen throughout this novel. And this novel is structured by synchronicities. Oh, yes. And so, for example, the name of the author that Lucas Medlar creates and seems to almost believe in him as an autonomous person, as a, a person who really exists, Michael Ashman. Ashman, in his recollections of pre-war Europe, is constantly slipping between times and presaging the ash from the crematoria of the Nazi death camps. Yes. And there's a story that happens elsewhere in the novel that is surreal that has to do with a cemetery catching fire and a nauseating, ashy smell permeating the landscape. And so this idea of like burning corpses and ash all coming to a synchronistic point, like in the death of the narrator's wife, which happens swiftly, matter-of-factly, like I said, in the last page of the novel, as, for one thing, a fulfillment of this generally fatal view of magic, that magical power or even ecstatic illumination is bought at a terrible cost of suffering. Yeah. But also, <laughs> it's not as if he's been carefully putting these motifs in place the ash motif or whatever. It's not like one of those things where you're like, oh, I bet there's going to be some kind of ash motif on the last page. Right. Like synchronicities happen in this novel exactly the way they do in real life, in the life of somebody who performs acts of divination or magic, uh, which is to say 
with a feeling of caprice and total unexpectedness, and yet the feeling of an iron hand of fate dropping on your right. shoulder. And also, you always have the sense that you're missing half of them. Yeah, right? that you're exactly. only you're just picking up a few. Like they're not even being put there particularly for you. They're just all over the place and you happen to be picking up some of them and they're going to be happening whether you take notice or not. You know, like there's this, but there's a sense of um, that phrase that I quoted earlier, there is no escape from inside the meaning of things, which I like a lot. The very first paragraph of the book gives us a sense of that. Um, I'll just read it. It's real short. The narrator is talking about his childhood He writes, when I was a tiny boy, I often sat motionless in the garden, bathed in sunshine, hands flat on the rough brick of the garden path, waiting with a prolonged, almost painful expectation for whatever would happen, whatever event was contained by that moment, whatever revelation lay dormant in it. I was drenched in the rough, dusty, aromatic smells of dock leaves and marigolds. In the corner of the warm wall, rhubarb blanched under an upturned zinc tub eaten away with rust. I could smell it there. This idea of being in this place that's almost kind of a, just this huge proliferation or kind of this exuberant abundance of signs and life and growth. Yes. And being there and waiting for it to tell you something. Mm -hmm. Uh, This kind of expectancy. A few pages later, um, the narrator talks about his mother in the, the first few pages, then jumps to when he was in university in Cambridge in the, in the UK. And uh, he's on the train one day and he happens to meet an African man who shows up again or is mentioned again elsewhere in the book, but we're never told who this guy is. Obviously, he's very important and very powerful. Mm-hmm. So there's the, the narrator sitting across from this black man and then there's like two English ladies having a discussion about something or other in the two other seats. Well, they're talking about a water lizard with a baggy looking skin that one of them says was just like a canvas bag. Right. And she's just like an old green canvas bag. (laughs) (laughs) And this black man leans forward and says, what if evolution were teleological after all, he asked, with aesthetic goals. And that line is just kind of dropped in the book like that. And, but I think- And needless to say, these people on the train just look at him blankly. Like he's crazy. Yeah, exactly. But the idea that you could have both evolution, just as Darwin describes it, and still have it be teleological, why wouldn't it be? Why wouldn't the lizard skin be just like a green canvas bag? What if that were an accurate thing to say about lizard skin? What if there are these correspondences between things that in a purely deterministic way have nothing to do with with each other? What if the aesthetic correspondences that we observe between things, what if those are also part of what evolution is? It's just, uh, and then the whole book is written, I think, in that spirit, or at least in the spirit that the characters would like that to be. I don't know. I... Just having read a few interviews with Jim John Harrison, I don't know. I don't think he believes that. Or maybe he does. Uh, but that certainly seems to be the fictional universe that he's painting for us here. A world where things are both random and to go back to your Fortuna essays, a universe that where things are absolutely random and yet utterly and inexorably meaningful at the same time.
That quality that you were talking about when the narrator is reminiscing about his childhood and you have this sort of feeling of a world trembling on the verge of crystallizing an ineffable and ecstatic meaning. That is the feeling that you feel throughout this book. There's always this feeling that something wonderful is about to appear like, like in high school chemistry and you have the super saturated solution and you throw the one grain in that suddenly a clear liquid just turns into a, like a rose of crystal, right. poof, just like that. It's a good metaphor, actually, because the image of the rose is constantly used as a figure for the car yeah. in this novel. The possibility that just walking around, like there might be a slant of light or a shimmer of air in the poplar leaves or something that gives you this presentiment of intense meaningfulness just waiting to burst out. And this whole novel gives you this feeling. Yeah. And in fact, the very passage that you just mentioned, this is one of my favorite passages in the book, the African man on the train who interrupts this conversation with this wonderfully thoughtful and kind of deep way of thinking about the lizard that looks like a green canvas bag. On the next page, the narrator says, I think, you know, I went to the bathroom and came back. The guy was gone, but he had left a piece of paper folded up for him and had entrusted it to one of the other passengers to give to him. Last bloke in the seat left this for you, he said. Uh, it was a square of folded newspaper on which had been written in a clear, delightfully even hand. I couldn't help noticing how you admired the birch trees. Birch woods, more than any others, are meant to be seen by autumn light. It surprises them in a dance, a celebration of something which is, in a tree, akin to the animal. They dance even on cold, still days when the air leaves them motionless, limbs like illuminated bone caught moving or just ceasing to move in a mauve smoke of twigs. <laughs> this was unsigned. I turned it over, but nothing more was written there. Right. Holy beautiful. shit. Like, you know, yeah. that's like a, a poem, a beautiful, beautiful poem that you say, what does it mean? I don't know what it means other than to tell you something about trees, about birches, which, by the way, beautifully observed about birches. But quite apart from anything, it actually performs the condition of what we're talking about, that feeling of a kind of sensate revelation trembling on the edge of manifestation. And in moments like this, you get these little rifty moments in the prose where suddenly it appears, yeah, you know, where like you're in, the, oh, so, okay, I'm in the capital Z zone. Somewhere yeah. back there, I cross some invisible threshold and I'm there. Yeah. And, and then you're not. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and the whole novel is constantly cultivating or nurturing these moments, but it's always playing this funny teasing game of never giving you some kind of payoff by which you could then kind of like square away the meaning of it. It, it remains right. ambiguous to the end. And the revelation is the trembling itself in a way. Yeah. It's the way that reality starts to tremble with significance. That is the pleroma in a way. That is the, the kind of magic of it. That's the answer. Uh, the, yes. ex, the expectation itself is the kind of answer. Now, there's uh, another great little bit in this book, if I can just find it. Um, so this is... I believe this is Lucas, the narrator's friend, 
musing in his own journals. I don't remember if that's exactly the case. It doesn't really matter because the whole book's kind of written in, a one, vo- in one voice in a way. One voice, but with intensifications. Exactly, exactly. In a very musical way. Yeah. Exactly. Moments of intensification, such as the passage I just read, or indeed any of the Michael Ashman passages, which right. have a kind of eerie quality to them, where you really feel like you drop through a wormhole. So in this instance... This passage has to do with how you should approach the car, the pleroma, trying to make sense of this reality, how to discover, how to connect with the other world through this world. And uh, it goes, we must sound the historical top board then, like someone testing a musical instrument. If we wish to hear the fading resonance of the car, its convulsion, its fall, its disappearance as a kingdom of the world. Less acute researchers allow themselves to be deafened by a catastrophe, which, they reason, goes through the fabric like the explosion of a bomb. But we know that by now it is only a whisper, an event implicit in the way other events are organized. Less an event, in fact, than what rhetoricians might call a gap. We can never be sure we have found the car except by its absence. Falling Mm. into the gap, we may glimpse that great light which, though it takes a million years to fade, would otherwise remain invisible to us, even if we knew where to look, in the shape of a ripple in the sand, the position of an empty cardboard box on a building site, the angle of a woman's head as she turns joyfully to listen to three notes of music, a playing card king seen in a sidelong light. And so it's like these Mm. little throwaway angles, as we say in film, like these little cutaways, these little shots of life, these little images you might see that mean nothing on their own, but somehow the juxtaposition of that light and that card, the way the light falls on the card, the way that woman looks up just then, the way that that piece of cardboard sits in this stockyard, whatever it is, these are the little signs that speak to us. Not because of some union synchronicity, oh, I was thinking this and now I see that, but just in a purely aesthetic way, these particular moments, these particular gaps, these short circuits, and another point in the book, they refer to them as short circuits of history. These moments where the deterministic chain of cause and effect gives us an instance that has nothing to do with causality, but something to do with a pure aesthetic moment. These are the moments that tell us something about this world and through it about the other world, about the... Mm -hmm the world from which we've fallen, because ultimately I think this is a pretty Gnostic book. Yeah. Yeah. It's just and beautiful stuff. The passage that you just read in that kind of modernist meta way also tells you a little bit how to read the book. Right. That search for the cur. It all starts with a single photo postcard that Medlar finds in a rag and bone shop, I think. Mm-hmm. A detail of a religious building. And... He just picks it up and sends it to her kind of as a goof. And that's the beginning of this mythology of the Kerr, because then they just decide, I guess, arbitrarily, that is where the Kerr was to be found. Right. In that particular shot. It's actually ambiguous, though. Is it that particular building or that particular architectural detail of that building? Or is it the photo? Right. Or is it the peculiar, never-to-be-reproduced or repeated conjunction of that piece of a building at that particular time, in that light, with that camera. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's possible that the Kerr is not, you know, in this cathedral building. It's in that photo. And 
we are constantly being given to understand that the Ke is kind of a kingdom, or it was once a kingdom until it not only stopped being a kingdom, but in fact, history changed and it never was a kingdom. Uh, shades of John Crowley's Egypt. Right. In that weird, what I, I like to call parachronic logic. But quite apart from whether it was an actual place with an actual queen and an actual line of succession, which it is at least ambiguously suggested it was, the cur also becomes this thing that can emerge in the interstices of things, in gaps, in strange moments, in lapses. It can happen to you, right? It, like today, walking home from work, you could catch a glimpse of the cur. And the way he manages to give us this sense, it's not so much telling you as showing you very often, I would argue, in the nature of the writing. So like, for example, in this scene where we have some English women on a train and the narrator just quietly observing them, having a banal conversation about somebody's trip to the zoo, suddenly this incongruous figure leans forward and says this, like this right. surprisingly and incongruously intelligent thing about the possibility that evolution has aesthetic goals. And then his little note that he leaves the narrator behind that I just read. In these moments, you have the sense that the cur is close. Not so much that you're like, oh, th there's Mr. Kerr. There's a guy who's going to be, you yeah. know, tagged in the narrative as some kind of emissary from the Kerr. At first, I thought that was where he was going with this. And then I realized, no, nothing so obvious. It's in moments of illumination where suddenly... To use a line from Borges, it was as if a more complex interlocutor had joined the dialogue. Right. And that's a line from Borges' short story, The Approach to Al-Mutazim. And I'm going to read you this passage. I think I might have read it on another show. It's sort of a keynote to my way of thinking. I have this sort of conviction that what Borges is describing is something that we can actually experience very often in our daily lives. This feeling that you're in a milieu, it seems like you know what its level is. You kind of know what you can expect from it and what you can't. Like if you're, I don't know, in a Department of Motor Vehicles office getting your license renewed or something like that. Kind of know what to expect, right? But it's always possible you'll encounter something that seems to be a reflection from something that is not of that milieu, but of some other higher or more numinous milieu. And it is always possible for little shafts of light to come from outside any given situation and light it up unpredictably. And so in the approach to Al-Mutazim, that is one of those, again, fundamentally modernist sort of things where you have a story about a story. And instead of writing a whole novel, Borges just writes a short story in the form of a review of a novel that never existed, like a novel he's imagining. So Borges writes of this non-existent novel, the plot is as follows. A man, the incredulous and fugitive student whom we already know, and this is coming after a little bit of earlier plot exposition, falls among people of the vilest class and adjusts himself to them in a kind of contest of infamy. All at once, with the miraculous consternation of Robinson Crusoe faced with the human footprint in the sand, he perceives some mitigation in this infamy, a tenderness, an exaltation, a silence in one of the abhorrent men. 
It was as if a more complex interlocutor had joined the dialogue. He knows that the vile man conversing with him is incapable of this momentaneous decorum. From this fact, he concludes that the other, for the moment, is the reflection of a friend, or of the friend of a friend. Rethinking the problem, he arrives at a mysterious conviction. Some place in the world there is a man from whom this clarity emanates. Some place in the world there is a man who is this clarity. The student resolves to dedicate his life to finding him. Right. And that's not a bad description for the basic shape of the course of the heart, which is all this time, these characters who have performed some ritual they can't even quite remember that had to do with accessing the pleroma and they're haunted by the pleroma, but also they kind of want to find it again. And in mm -hmm. this perhaps compensatory fantasy of the cur, but in creating this compensatory fantasy, it is, you know, a hyperstition. Like you realize by right. the end, this story that Pam and Lucas have made out of whole cloth in fact, is true in some sense. Yes. And in their search for it, their search, which is also an invention, but it's also a discovery of something that's already there. Their search for it is conducted the way the student in the approach to Al-Mutazim conducts his search. The student resolves to dedicate his life to finding this man from whom the clarity emanates, this man who is that clarity or we might say the pleroma. We are reminded repeatedly in the book that finding the pleroma or finding this clarity, this answer, has nothing to do with intellectual understanding. Right. There's a really nice little passage here which drives us home. He writes, A rainbow like fire pouring down from heaven. Bare trees glimpsed through the violet end of the rainbow, transfigured, Delicate, fragile, and complex as a sea creature in a bowl of water. Gold light on everything. Every object or event in this moment has idealized itself. Every hawthorn hedge or grate in the twilight. Every fold of a hill. Every peach and silver line of cloud above an orange sun. Every conifer in a suburban garden, black against the house with its strings of fairy lights round each yellow window. Willows bending over roads, their leaves silver in the wind. Comprehend the heart and you will never experience it. Comprehend the heart, meaning the car, and you will never experience it. Somehow, the intellect always betrays experience. At some point, you have to stop trying to understand things in order to experience them. Yeah. And there's a lot of that in this book. Uh, and I read an interview with Harrison where he says, you're not supposed to identify with my characters. You're supposed to pity them. And uh, huh, I guess... <laughs> I, this is where we, authorial intent becomes, uh, maybe uh, that's not where we want to go with this, but um, I, I don't pity them. I don't like that authorial intent. I don't like it either. Um, it bothers me for some reason. I, I think about Harrison, and this is just what I've been able to gather from my interest in him reading interviews and essays. Um, he wrote a famous internet post against world building in fantasy. He's been called a genre contrarian. Like he writes fantasy because he doesn't like fantasy kind of thing. Yeah. There is a moment in that essay against world building where he uh, makes fun of the belief in magic or religion. I think that in one sense, you could read this book as a didactic warning against uh, indulging in silly wish fulfillment. 
that ultimately it'll never pay off. You'll never get your wish. And reality is so, um, well, and let me put it this way. There's a, a vision that he actually repeats, I think verbatim twice. It's a, this is, so Pam, the character of Pam is an epileptic. And when she had her first epileptic seizure, she had a vision, which often happens to epileptics, I've heard. Mm-hmm. And she describes the vision and it's, it comes back towards the end of the book. The vision's as follows. And in a way, you could read this vision, this little moment, as a kind of synecdoche of the whole book. In a way, it kind of summarizes the human condition as this book depicts it. Pam says, it was very clear, uh, she's talking about the vision she had, a seashore, steep and with no sand, men and women lying on the rocks in the sunshine like lizards, smiling at the surf as it exploded in front of them, huge waves that might have been on a cinema screen for all the notice anyone took of them. At the same time, I could see tiny spiders making webs between the rocks, just a foot or two above the tide line. Though it trembled and was sometimes filled with spray like dewdrops so that it glittered in the sun, every web remained unbroken. So close to all that violence. I can't describe the sense of anxiety with which this fills me. You wondered why the spiders had so little common sense. So in in sense Hmm. that we are all little spiders in our little webs, unaware of the fact that right beside us, the tide is coming. These huge waves are crashing against the rocks. They, they belong, those, the waves, the ocean belongs to a reality to which the spider has no access at all. And yet that reality will destroy it. Sometimes I get the sense that he's putting us in that kind of world in this book, a world where the real is so immense, so beyond our understanding. Uh, it's a truly Lovecraftian book in this sense, I think, so unconcerned with us that any attempt to engage with it is, first of all, is doomed to disaster. It's just going to end up being catastrophic. And also that whether we engage with it or not, it will swallow us all in the end. The book ends on a note that I found particularly cynical or pessimistic, at least, when it comes to the project, the great project that is art, magic, and religion in human history. In that sense, although I have nothing but admiration for the book, aesthetically, literarily, or whatever, I don't know if I could get behind that particular philosophical interpretation of it personally, even though I think that you have to kind of go through that to get to something else. You kind of have to face that reality, that possibility before you can get anywhere else. So Mm -hmm. it's like we were talking about Ligotti and and that type of dark pessimism. I'm a huge Ligotti fan. And I think it's not so much about finding a philosophy that contradicts the pessimism of a Ligotti or perhaps the pessimism of an M. John Harrison, but rather fully accepting the truth of what they're saying and then saying, but also this, you know? Yeah. But I did think that that vision uh, of Pam's for me, encapsulates a little bit the, the mood of this book, that we're, we're all these little spiders in these webs beside this raging ocean. You know, this is kind of a nice little, I want to say synchronicity, but let's just say a little coincidence. Um, somebody on the Weird Studies subreddit just posted something where they were like, is Weird Studies a synchronicity attractor? And people were engine, weighing yeah, in yeah, on that. Yeah, yeah. an engine. And I said, yeah, uh, it, it, this happens to me all the time with textual connections. So the example I gave was something from Course of the Heart, where the narrator is musing on, on, on a line of Van Gogh's, where he said, we shouldn't judge God too harshly. Perhaps this world is just a sketch of his that didn't come off. And um, 
the very next day, the first thing I found uh, when I was looking for something else was that same quote in a totally different context in a essay by Albert Camus called right. uh, Art and Revolt. So little connections like that. I have just such a connection here. You just read the passage about spiders and spider webs and how that could be uh, an image, a dismal image, a an imminent counter-enlightenment way of framing the futility and smallness of our little existences. But there is a kind of a, a great doubt where you have to kind of go all the way into that. Mm -hmm. And yet you somehow have to keep going. And there's a logic of enantiodromia that obtains with the great doubt that the greatest doubt can reverse into something quite other. Right. And so let's just stick with that image of spiders and spider webs. Yesterday I was, I pulled a book off the shelf that I haven't read in about four years called the spell of the sensuous by David Abram. Mm -hmm. And it begins with an account of him doing a research project in Indonesia and Bali. He's a, stage magician, like a conjurer. And he wanted to study the tricks that magical healers in that part of the world, the, the tricks that they use to convince clients that they're pulling evil spirits bodily out of them. But it ended up being this kind of experience of the interconnectedness of everything, a kind of vision of process philosophy where you realize it like meaning and identity and being itself is something emergent from the total vast interconnected interdependent pattern of everything. And he tells a story where that just snapped into focus with him. His sort of eureka moment happened when he ended up finding a series of caves carved in cliffs overhanging a, a river and how he began to explore some of these caves. He's sort of in the midst of this like tumult, this chaos of moving water and the burble of the sound against the rock walls. Actually, I'm just going to start quoting him. In the midst of all this tumult, I noticed a small, delicate activity just in front of me. And only an inch or two to my side of the torrent, a spider was climbing on a thin thread stretched across the mouth of the cave. As I watched, it anchored another thread to the top of the opening, then slipped back along the first thread and joined the two at a point about midway between the roof and the floor. I lost sight of the spider then, and for a while it seemed that it had vanished, thread and all, until my focus rediscovered it. Two more threads now radiated from the center to the floor, and then another. Soon the spider began to swing between these as if on a circular trellis, trailing an ever-lengthening thread, which it affixed to each radiating rung as it moved from one to the next, spiraling outwards. The spider seemed wholly undaunted by the tumult of water spilling past it, though every now and then it broke off its spiral dance and climbed to the roof or the floor to tug on the radii there, assuring the tautness of the threads, and crawled back to where it left off. Whenever I lost the correct focus, I waited to catch sight of the spinning arachnid, and then let its dancing form gradually draw the lineaments of the web back into visibility, tying my focus into each new knot of silk as it moved, weaving my gaze into the ever-deepening pattern. And then, abruptly, my vision snagged on a strange incongruity, Another thread slanted across the web, neither radiating nor spiraling from the central juncture, violating the symmetry. As I followed it with my eyes, pondering its purpose in the overall pattern, 
I began to realize that it was on a different plane from the rest of the web, for the web slipped out of focus whenever this new line became clearer. I soon saw that it led to its own center, about twelve inches to the right of the first, another nexus of forces from which several threads stretched to the floor and the ceiling. And then I saw that there was a different spider spinning this web, testing its tautness by dancing around it, like the first, now setting the silken cross weaves around the nodal point and winding outward. The two spiders spun independently of each other, but to my eyes they wove a single intersecting pattern. This widening of my gaze soon disclosed yet another spider spiraling in the cave's mouth, and suddenly I realized that there were many overlapping webs coming into being, radiating out at different rhythms from myriad centers poised, some higher, some lower, some minutely closer to my eyes, and some farther between the stone above and the stone below. I sat stunned and mesmerized before this ever-complexifying expanse of living patterns upon patterns, my gaze drawn like a breath into one converging group of lines, then breathed out into open space, then drawn down into another convergence. The curtain of water had become utterly silent. I tried at one point to hear it, but could not. My senses were entranced. I had the distinct impression that I was watching the universe being born, galaxy upon galaxy." Sorry, that's a long passage, but I thought it was beautiful and an ecstatic vision of what, you know, when you're in the great doubt, it's just some fucking spiders. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I'm just like the spiders. Yeah. Right. And yet, as you're drawn out of yourself and into the relationality that all of these different things have to one another, you become part of that web. Exactly. Then... The question of meaning, ask the question, what is the meaning of this, is absurd. The meaning is the pattern. Yes. And you're a part of that. Yeah. Meaning isn't like something you can extract from that. Yeah, that's true. And 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 uh, I was just like thinking about spiders now. Um, the spider is a beautiful figure to talk about. To go back to what we were saying at the beginning about this obliteration of the line or the boundary between the inner and outer. Because... In a sense, when you're watching a spider weaving a web, you're watching a spider do something with itself. I mean, the web is mm -hmm. part of the spider. The web is, as has been said often in scientific textbooks or, I don't know, Nature magazine or whatever, the spider's web is part of its nervous system. Yes. Uh, it is an inner entity for the spider and an outer one. So mm -hmm. the way that the inner bleeds out into the outer so that the meaning that we think as moderns, we project out onto things. To the, the idea that that projection, that act of projecting meaning is itself part of the pattern of the universe itself. That gives us, a, it's like you, 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 we can see ourselves as, as little spiders existing in our little web, but the web is connected to the world, which is connected to the planet, which is connected to the rest of the universe and the galaxies. There's a continuity from that interior sense of meaning, that interior search for the car or whatever, and the actual process by which the universe has evolved. It may be a kind of a specious thing to do to try to impose a boundary between those things. As you were saying, the meaning is always inside it. Or as the book says, there is no escape from inside the meaning of things. Yes, exactly.
we've dealt with, I guess you could call the kind of the visionary aspect of this novel, but the novel, it, it's not an experimental novel, right? It's a fairly conventional novel. And it has, even in terms of the uh, religious beliefs these characters share, is, is fairly concrete and straightforward. In fact, in a way, this novel is an attempt to fictionalize or to render into fiction Gnosticism, and specifically the Gnosticism of Valentinus, a second century Gnostic heresiarch from uh, Alexandria. And the reason I know this is because there's a moment towards the end where he, all of a sudden, after all this ambiguity, he talks about, there's a, a, a figure in the book, the author refers to her at first as a grown woman. He, he overhears his mother talking on the phone when he's a kid, and she's saying, a grown woman, can you imagine that? A grown woman doing this. And to this child, to the narrator as a child, the, the phrase grown woman just evokes for him the image of a woman being grown in a garden, like a plant. But then that turns out to be his little postcard that leads to his whole vision of the goddess. And the goddess in this book is analogous to the Gnostic Sophia. And at one point he writes towards the end, he says, this time she had brought for us, he's talking about the goddess, she had brought for us a glimpse of her own place, the envelope of her eternal fall, which is perhaps of the Pleroma, but not yet the Pleroma itself. And then he writes in parenthesis, 30th aeon, beloved of God, she cast herself out and fell into mirrors in Alexandria, Rome, Manchester, Birkenau. Roses blooming in the garden, the rose of earth is the lily of heaven. Strange little passage, but when he describes this feminine archetype that comes back again and again in the book as the 30th aeon, he's making a direct reference to Valentinus, for whom there was the original God, called him Bethos, right? The void or the one. And the original God has 30 emanations, the lowest of which is Sophia, which in Greek means wisdom. And Sophia is the 30th aeon of the God. And what happens in Valentinus's cosmological story is that Sophia longs to reunite with the source. And so she does two things. She gives birth to Christ and Christ moves up past all the aeons to return to the father, to Bethos. And she also, in her yearning, her desire, her unfulfillment, her dissatisfaction creates the Demiurge who makes our world, our fallen world, as a poor replica, as a poor um, echo of the original Pleroma, of the true God. And so here, he's like actually being extremely, almost kind of a, in an academic way, telling us what he's talking about, what kind of myth he's working with here. Uh, it comes back again uh, later when he contrasts the term Pleroma, which in Greek means fullness, to Kinoma, which means emptiness. And those are the terms that Valentinus used to describe heaven and earth, earth being empty, fallen, malkut in the, the Kabbalistic sense, and then the original heaven being the fullness to which we must return, we must climb our way back to. And then, of course, there's that little quote at the end, the rose of earth is a lily of heaven, which is from Crowley, as it turns out. I did some research. Rosa hmm. mundi est lilium coeli, which is a Latin. I don't know where Crowley gets it. I did this research fast. I didn't have time to go in very much depth. But Crowley says that that line means Malkut is Bina. Bina being the feminine principle of, the, of, of God. And so the rose of the world, the feminine in this world, the women in this world are actually all the same as the original goddess. So here we have a kind of like 
Gnostic, almost like kind of a Gnostic praxis. And a lot of the Gnostics were wandering sages who took on a consort, a female consort, whom they often named, like Simon Magus is a famous one. He had a consort, and through his relationship with her, they kind of re, uh, reenacted the Hieros Gamos, the marriage of the original principles beyond our world. So like if for someone who likes Gnosticism, this book is filled with stuff. I mean, you could just have a party just drawing connections and stuff like that. So it has this whole other side to it, which is an almost kind of um, an experiment with modern Gnosticism in a very kind of Crowleyan way. It's really interesting that way. I got a question for you. Yeah. So we talked about the goddess, the grown woman. I love that sort of punning connection, yeah. which I did not make. Um, the description of her when she first appears in a dream, when the narrator has gone through this horrible experience with Yaxley in London, Yaxley has some vague designs upon the Pleroma. Like he's both terrified of being kind of sucked up into it, but he also kind of wants to control it. Yeah. So... Yaxley has some kind of working device that's going to use this kind of London banker type. And uh, I don't get into it. It's so fucking dark. Yeah, I, I, was really reading dark. It. I was reading it and I was like, oh shit. Oh shit. Yeah. Oh shit. You're not going to go there. Oh, you're going there. Okay. Oh, you're going there. <laughs> it's so dark. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, after that goes predictably sideways, the narrator spends some time on the seashore sleeping and dreaming in a disused quarry, which itself is a wonderful kind of dream image. And in one of these dreams, he sees this goddess. And the way it is written is it's very ambiguous whether this is just something that he's seeing at yeah. this quarry or whether it's a dream. Well, in fact, it, it reads like something he's just seeing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I had to reread this passage a number of times be like, okay, which side of reality are we in? Yeah. This is getting back to what I was saying at the beginning, where you constantly have this feeling of this very uh, permeable boundary between reality and the imaginal, as if reality weren't already imaginal, but you know what I mean. Exactly, yeah. So this is a passage on page 92, if you have the book. All morning, a hot, enervating wind had scoured the village, bringing with it unidentifiable tarry smells. Among the quarries, it was even hotter. Suddenly, there was a movement deep in the shadowy crevice between the two walls, and the green woman walked out into the sunlight, relaxed and naked. I watched her carefully from a distance. While her outline was perfectly sharp, it seemed to have no surfaces, and flowers came and went within it as she turned her head deliberately this way and that. She was like a window opened onto a mass of leafage after rain— Branches of blackthorn, aglet and elder interwoven, plaits of grass and fern, all held together with rosebriars, over and between which went a constant trickle of water. She knew I was there. We are never simply ourselves, she said. Yeah. And that line comes back directly at, at the, the end. end. Yeah. After Pam has died from a protracted and horrible illness. And Lucas, although she and Pam clearly never enjoyed a happy marriage together, nevertheless is utterly grief-stricken. You realize like Pam was everything to him. Lucas and the narrator go to a pub and there's just, you know, like goofy goings on in a pub and it's just some bullshit that they're seeing and they walk out and they're in the car. Yeah. And it's not a fucking dream. They're actually there. And... 
they encounter this woman again. And the passage is written almost exactly the same, the description. With the addition, the, her eyes were a pitiless chalky blue, without white or pupil. They were flowers too. She knew we were there. She stretched her arms, standing with one leg bent and the other stiffened to take her weight. You were never simply yourselves, she whispered. This is the climax of the book. And this is like, yeah. this in a sense, this is what these characters have been searching for. The cur, which they've imagined and yet which also in some ways imagining them. Yes. And who is this car, this, this empress, this character who is at one and the same time, Pam and the empress, Pam being yes. Malkut, the rose of the earth, and then the lily of heaven being the empress. And it's like all these, it's a, a vision of the feminine towards the end that is yeah. uh, fairly Jungian, I guess like you could say, but just described with such beautiful ambiguity that you feel like there's something there, that he's onto yeah. something. Yeah. You know? Okay. So my question is, what does that mean? You are never simply yourselves. Well, and what does it mean was, in this context? Well, I was thinking about it, uh, actually. And I mean, I, I just thought that all my answers were boring. Uh, you are never, <laughs> Me too. Yeah, you are never simply no. yourselves, meaning the idea of a discrete self is an illusion that we're actually all composed. Like he, he's describing her as though she were both, she had no surfaces, he says. Yeah. She had no surfaces, meaning she was just a product of all these other things. She was the effect of all these flowers and all these other forces combining to form yes. a, a, an entity. So she's yes. not herself. She's like you were saying with the, uh, the David Abrams um, passage. Yeah, she, she's, just with the she's, spiders. She's composed of, a, she's an intersection of forces. And she's yeah. telling us this about ourselves. And that, that can be, I'm sure that can be quite a liberating gnosis or realization. I think that might be one thing she means. As for what she is, I mean, it's funny because when I was reading this, I was like, wow, we can make this our uh, tarot card number two show. This could be the Empress show. Right? Oh. Uh, because the, wow. the, the Empress card of that. is the grown woman, right? She's the woman who's mm, also indeed vegetal. It's interesting because I'm, I can't help but remember that the original short story that began this novel, that he wrote the short story and then he wrote the novel from what I could gather. That short story was called The Great God Pan, who is mm. the male counterpart of nature deified. The female part of nature deified is this empress, this goddess. You know, in Wicca, they have the goddess or goddess and the horned god who's Pan. In this book, Pan is kind of latest. In fact, even in the short story, Pan doesn't come up at all. He's just yeah, evoked in the title. But there are intimations or hints of something that I think gives us a sense of the other side of the story, the male side of this divine image that he paints, which I guess we could call Pan. The first paragraph, which I read earlier, of the boy in the backyard amongst all these plants waiting for something to happen in the sunshine... Actually, I wouldn't be surprised if he was aware of this when he wrote it. It really resembles an episode in Bruno Schultz's uh, Street of Crocodiles, where the boy is in the backyard and there's all this, all these plants and it's noon and the sun is drenching the world and he's moving through these plants and he, he parts some reeds and he sees Pan. Um, mm. So in that particular context, in Street of Crocodiles, that expectation has a payoff. He sees Pan. He sees the god Pan. 
my point being that the Greek vision, the Greek idea of Pan is a lot more than just a fawn, a lot more than just like a guy with goat legs and horns. Pan means all. And as we talked about in other episodes before, and as we'll talk about soon, I guess, when we do our show with Gyrus, right? Um, yeah. Who is doing work on Pan. Pan is at least in the context in which Machin uses Pan in his book, The Great God Pan, Pan is the real, the creative force of the real itself. And so to me, these two images of the goddess and the horned god, uh, I don't know, what does it all mean? I don't know. It's just, it's a, it's an, it's an image of, of the male and female principles by which this world comes into being. I mean, one of the central images of the of this novel, of course, of the heart has to do with Pam's curse, which is that she keeps seeing this couple, the white couple, these two strange white humanoid creatures that are forever locked in a kind of permanent embrace, whirling around each other and engage in kind of like a sexual union. And she sees them hovering in her backyard constantly. And that symbol of this couple, these two principles intermingling for no reason, creating all this life, all this meaning, all this, this, uh, just more and more of of everything, uh, yeah, it, it, for no reason, and yet <laughs> it is kind of uh, one of the central images of the book. So I think that, yeah. she, that the goddess plays into that. And a wonderful moment of weirdness, weird, creepy shit. That I mean, that's like if you were committed to a narrow view of this as magic realism, like a basically realistic novel with a sprinkling of magical things in it that would be one of the main sprinklings. The moment that the narrator coming to help Pam, who's in a rough way, and tries to fix her a cup of tea, and he looks out her kitchen window and he sees the white couple and he just fucking loses it. You know, and you, you get the sense that this is terrifying. It causes panic. Yeah, exactly. In them. Yeah. That merely seeing these beings causes a kind of panic. I would panic if I saw them outside my kitchen window. I probably would too. This is something that is, I think, although crucial to understand. Oh yeah. Although, although I just want to say that the one time I did see the white person, <laughs> uh, a white woman in the tent, as I reported to Stuart Davis, I didn't panic. <laughs> so maybe I wouldn't. That's all. <laughs> but if there had been a guy there, if there had been a white woman and a white man. Right. I mean, it'd been, Yeah. Three's a Coupling crack. endlessly before your eyes would have driven you mad. Right. It probably would have driven me completely bonkers. Yeah. Anyways, you were saying. No, anyway, um, this is getting back to what I was saying about like, what is the cur? It's a kind of ecstasy and it can be an ecstasy of fear and it can be an ecstasy of desire. It can be an ecstasy of pleasure and ecstasy of pain. And the panic of seeing this white couple the fear of seeing Pan out there in the wilderness, of coming upon Pan unawares at noontime. I've never really understood that in a way. And actually in our conversation, it's becoming clearer to me that that image is the image of those cosmic forces. Uh, actually, I would prefer to say a cosmic process that constitutes us, that is us. We are that process. We are the spider webs, the tendrils, the, you know, we're the, we're part of that dense, intricate, endless watchwork. And that vision of the all is ecstatic, 
but it can be an ecstasy that will just crush you. But it also can be the ecstasy that gives your life all its meaning, all its value. Pan is all, and that vision is all. It can be everything you ever want to be and everything that you're afraid of at the same time. Consider subscribing to Weird Studies on iTunes, Stitcher, or another podcast service. You can also follow us on Twitter or support us on Patreon. Music for the podcast is composed and performed by Pierre-Yves Martel. Thank you for listening.